All right, so we had been gone through, uh, go back here, talked about uh, first we went through nutritional requirements, and then we went through physical requirements. We talked about oxygen. Um, uh, oh, those are all nutrients there. We talked about uh, temperature uh, the, and the different groups. So the uh, listeria would be classified over in this group here, which is why it's a problem, public health issue, because most part, when you put things in the refrigerator, bacteria stop growing. It doesn't kill anybody, but they're not going to grow. And so if they don't grow, uh, it's, they usually don't cause much of a problem. Uh, the listeria doesn't stop when it's refrigerated. Uh, let's see. So we looked at some examples, and then we came to uh, the pH. Okay, so organisms are very sensitive to acidity. Uh, most of the, well, almost all pathogens are going to be what we call neutrophiles because they want, they're going to live on us. They're going to have to deal with the fact that our pH is pretty darn close to 7, about 7.2 to 7.5, somewhere in that range normally. And that's what they're going to have to deal with. So they're all going to be right there in the middle. But there are organisms, and I think I mentioned these a couple of last time, that are uh, will live in, uh, in fairly high acid environments and also fairly high alkaline environments. So, but pH does impact, uh, to a large degree, the three-dimensional shape of the proteins. And so those that live in a high acid environment, they have proteins that are, that are resistant to, to being denatured in that environment. Okay, then we also have the effects of water. And I say, all right, well, water, we, we, you know, everybody's got water. Everybody's got to have water. Everybody has to have water every day. Uh, uh, Stella, I thought, has been running that commercial about uh, you know, providing water in the third world by buying their glasses because the reality is that there are in parts of the world people who will spend 60 to 70 percent of their day just gathering enough water for the day. Okay, because they have to usually go a distance to get it and then they have to carry it back. Um, and you can't, you, water's heavy. Okay, you only carry so much. And so that is a, is a definite problem, okay? So we have to have them. It's the, the basis of our cells. It dissolves stuff. You know, it's a solvent for everything that's in the cells. Uh, however, and if you take water away, of course, cells die, and that's why we have cysts and endospores. Endospores from some bacteria. Cysts are mostly from proteins that basically withstand drying out. They have almost no metabolic activity because no water, you can't do much. Okay? However, water can also have two other effects. One of those is osmotic pressure, and the other is hydrostatic pressure. Now, you all, I'm sure everybody here remembers all about osmosis. Okay, when you have a solute that has a different concentration on two sides of a semi-permeable membrane, that does not let the solute go through, then what you will have is a movement, a net movement of water to the side that is the more concentrated to try to dilute it, and then of course the other side becomes more concentrated, and, 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 and trying to get close to some kind of equilibrium. Um, so uh, hypotonic, so well, osmotic pressure is the pressure exerted on the membrane in doing so. Now hypotonic solutions have low solute concentrations cells tend to lose water in that environment, or excuse me, tend to gain water. 
okay, the solution has very little dissolved in it, water is going to move into the cell. Uh, hypertonic ones are going to go the other way. This then has an effect on where organisms can live. Okay, osmotic pressure can regulate them somewhat their environment. Uh, this is particularly the case with salt, and we're going to talk about halophiles here in a moment, which are organisms that live in relatively high salt environments. Uh, hydrostatic pressure generally has to do with depth. You go down, uh, the deeper you go, and particularly in uh, marine environments, the higher the pressure is. Just like when you go up uh, a mountain, the pressure gets less and less. Okay? Uh, which is why when you live in places that are uh, elevated, uh, lived in Colorado Springs, our, our house was at about 6,300 feet. Um, and then you, when you buy one of those mixes, you have to use the high altitude directions because water boils at a lower temperature. Uh, things that are going to rise are going to rise more easily because there's less pressure. And so you have to modify recipes for that. All right. Well, that's one thing. As you go down, however, the pressure gets greater and greater. And when you get down to the deep ocean where the, uh, those hydro uh, vents are at, uh, at the bottom of the ocean, the pressure down there is absolutely tremendous. And yet there are still bacteria living there. Okay, bacteria that live here would not probably survive there. But there are species there that really form the basis of the food chain. Okay, because there are hot water and minerals are coming up out of the, out of the Earth's crust. These bacteria are able to take that and manufacture organic materials from that and support all of the other organisms that live around those vents. Okay? Uh, but they have to, uh, but their membranes and their enzymes have to be able to maintain their three-dimensional shape under those pressures. Okay, so water exerts two types of, of pressure then on organisms. One is because of osmosis, which we take advantage of. Uh, when we get to controlling the growth of bacteria, we'll complete that's one of the things we take advantage of is, is that thing. And then, of course, we do a little bit with pressure. Uh, when we put things even in the uh, autoclave, now that is mostly to uh, get the, the steam temperature up while we put them under some pressure. But the pressure itself also has an effect on microbes. And, and that's why the autoclave can sterilize uh, even endospores are killed there. Okay? So that's a physical requirement then, is, uh, and physical effects on the organisms. This is just a look at some of the deep sea vents. <clears throat> See the water coming out. This is a very high temperature, uh, sometimes up to uh, 1,000, 1,100 degrees. Uh, and the bacteria will live, obviously not right in it, but they live around it. Um, it's, of course, dark all the time. There's no photosynthesis going on down there. The only reason you can see this is there's artificial lighting that takes it down there. Uh, it's a tough environment. But there are many bacteria that survive that. Okay. Another uh, issue that, uh, just that affects uh, growth of organisms is their relationship with each other. Bacteria do not live in, for the most part, do not live in pure culture. Okay? Uh, almost anywhere you have bacteria, you're going to have a mixed culture of many different species of, of bacteria, and they have interactions with each other. Okay? 
Uh, many times, one is the waste products of one species of bacteria become the nutrients for yet another species. Okay? And so there are some pretty complex relationships that can occur. And when they are left alone for any period of time, these organisms will form uh, a film on, the, on surfaces. The one we're most common with, uh, uh, easy for me to say, uh, most familiar with is, is uh, plaque on your teeth. That's a biofilm. What you have is certain bacteria uh, using their pili will stick to the tooth. They will begin to secrete uh, poly, uh, basically uh, protein carbohydrate type <coughs> molecules that will form a matrix around them and other bacteria will be attracted and they will form this little mini ecosystem right there on your teeth. Uh, and then after a while, like after about 24 to 36 hours, they start to form, uh, uh, they precipitate some calcium carbonate, which makes it hard. And then you can't get it off with a toothbrush. And you have to go to the dentist and they'll scrape it off or use the little uh, ultrasonic thing uh, in order to get it off. Okay, now, if it was only teeth, okay, we, we know how to deal with that. Uh, but it's not only teeth. Medical devices, anybody who's got a, uh, uh, a, a, a catheter uh, that's going to be in place for any period of time, and it's a fine place for, for uh, biofilms to form. Somebody who uh, has to do um, kidney dialysis on a regular basis usually has a shunt that's installed, so they don't have to do that every time. Those can get biofilms on them. Uh, that can be a real problem. Okay? Uh, probably the water pipes to your house have biofilms on the inside of them. Doesn't mean they're all pathogens. Okay, that's not the point. But you have these associations, and many of them are not pathogens. But uh, they eventually make the bite pipe diameter so small. And they accumulate over time. Now, uh, how do they know when to secrete various substances? In other words. How do the, the bacteria in plaque know when to begin secreting the harder materials? It's called quorum sensing. Uh, bacteria don't have brains, okay, or at least not in the sense that we think of them. But what they do is they sense their environment. And when there are enough of a particular bacterium in the environment, they're all secreting substances. When those substances get to a certain level, that changes the metabolism of other ones. They react to that. They change their metabolism, and they begin to secrete things. Uh, this is called, this is referred to as quorum sensing, because you got to have enough of them to produce a high enough concentration of whatever it is they're sensing, or, or they won't change their behavior. Okay, uh, it's really quite common. Now, uh, some microorganisms can actually cause more problems when they're in a biofilm than they would if they were not. So biofilms are, are really common. They're really a problem in hospitals uh, or anywhere that's trying to maintain sterility of any kind. It's a real, really an issue. Um, this is just a, so these are free swimming microbes. They land on the surface. They attach, form a structure of one. One of them senses the other. They begin to release the intercellular matrix, forming this. And then new cells will arrive that will attract more. Usually they have gaps in here so that water flows through, okay, bringing nutrients and taking away waste products. Uh, 
and then ultimately this is what you have to get rid of off your teeth if you haven't taken care of it. Okay. Now, uh, and of course the microbes will, some of them will break free of that and go colonize new surfaces. And that's what they do. They're not, they're not evil, they just eat, survive, and reproduce. That's pretty much what most organisms do. And these are just some uh, some pictures. You really can't see all that much. This is on a, in a stream bed. This is all this is all biofilm here. Uh, this is another biofilm forming over here. Uh, the best I can find. I don't know, it's really hard to find good pictures of biofilms because they don't photograph well. Okay. Okay. So any any questions about growth requirements here? Okay. We had two basic uh, areas. We had. Uh, basically chemical nutrient type requirements and, and also uh, so we talked about oxygen requirements, nitrogen requirements, carbon requirements, energy requirements. Okay, we have that set of things. And then we have physical requirements. Okay, uh, and we looked at the various physical uh, things that can affect the growth of bacteria. So, now we're going to look a little bit at culturing organisms. Some of this will be reviewed because we've done some of this in lab already. Um, so you all know what an inoculum is but at this point, okay? It's a small amount of, uh, of critters that you take and place in another uh, culture or somewhere so that they will grow. Uh, and the act of cultivating them is called culturing, which you've been doing in lab, okay? Did that last week, too. Uh, you're gonna see the results today. Now, we talked a little bit about colonies, uh, and you did that the first week. Uh, organisms do, uh, if they start with a single organism, they will form a, a wide range of different colonies. Uh, these are some, and this was in your lab atlas, however, that we looked at. These are the, some of the different things that we look at uh, when we describe the colonies. And so uh, size, shape, uh, do they glisten, are they smooth edged, are they, you know, what, what are the different things? Are they flat, are they convex in the middle? Uh, some of them have a little come up and have a little point. It's just all, all types of, of colonies. Now, uh, again, pure chain, pure cultures, this is all going to be reviewed here. Uh, so pure culture is a culture that started from a single organism. And that way it, we know it's going to have only that organism in it. Uh, it's called a colony forming unit, or a CFU. Uh, if you work with viruses, that form plaques or areas where there are no bacteria, we call them PFUs or plaque forming units. It's the same idea, regardless of how you do that. Uh, aseptic technique, and we had the two common uh, techniques street plates and pore plates. We did street plates, or you all did, okay? Uh, and you had to remember to uh, sterilize between each part of the street so that you would spread them out over a wider area and ultimately end up with individual colonies that ideally were begun by a single cell. And the only way to verify that is to take one of these colonies and streak it again and make sure you get only one type of bacteria. And that's one of the ways you can do that. Okay, now pore plates work very similarly. In our uh, phage lab we do this, uh, we do pore plates. Um, and basically, in this case, there's been a serial dilution done, okay? As we, so these had 9 ml, so we've been 
diluting it and diluting it. And then you pour, now in this case, the auger is warm. Now we didn't do warm auger, we did it on plates and you took the little glass rod and spread it around. That's, that's called a spread plate. It's very similar. I mean, but in the phase lab, we actually have liquid auger in the tube, or we add liquid auger in the tube, mix it up, and they simply pour it on some auger that's already in the plate to uh, blend and your organisms are all in the top layer, or at least they're supposed to be. All works well. Uh, and by doing the serial dilutions, uh, you are looking for uh, plates that have a small enough number of colonies that you can count. Uh, and you should expect, ideally, if everything is, goes right, that and if I had another plate from this one, that each one of these would have, th this one would have 10 times as many as this, the next one would have 10 times as many as that, and of course pretty rapidly you get to where you can't count them anymore. Okay. That's the principle behind pour plates. Okay. In th this case they're pouring liquid auger, or in our case we poured the bacteria on and then spread them with the glass rod. Same basic principle in each case. Point of the, the says street plate is the primary mechanism by which we look for pure cultures, isolate pure cultures. Okay, pour plates and spread plates. Primary function is to reduce the number of organisms so that we can count them. That's what we're trying to accomplish with that, so that we can estimate the concentration of them that were in the original uh, culture. And a lot of you had some things that were like 10 to the 8th or 10 to the 7th, okay? Uh, 10 to the 8th per ml is a whole lot of bacteria. When we do the phage lab, we sometimes end up with 10 to the to 11th, uh, 10 to the 10th. Okay, so that's about 1 and 10 zeros. There's that many virus particles in 1 ml of, of that, of that uh, isolate. So uh, you expect normally to find, you know, obviously if you just plated that, you're going to get so many you can't count them. So we do serial dilutions and then we plate them so that they are able to count. Okay. Uh, now there are some others. Uh, fungi you can do, street plates and pore plates in many cases. Um, protozoans, uh, in some algae move around and they're, so they're a lot harder to isolate. But basically you dilute a broth culture and do the same type of thing. And of course if they're large enough you can pick out a single uh, you actually can pick out a single cell. That can be done. How would you pick it up without destroying it? With a uh, little pipette. Suck it in there with some fluid and do it somewhere else. Okay. I mean, uh, people who do that kind of work, they have such fine control, and, and often they make their own pipettes. They take glass, they warm it, and they pull it out until it's a very narrow uh, tip. Uh, and I have seen where they actually have the tips on the pipette are about one-fourth the size of a single cell. And they use that to hold the cell in place. Uh, they just a little bit of suction and hold that cell in place. Uh, this takes a knack that not every, that can take a long time to develop. Uh, they can even have them small enough to extract just the nucleus, puncture through the cell membrane, suck out only the and then implant that nucleus into the cell. By hand? Yes. Well, with the pipette. I mean, and it's not all by hand. They've got some little things with it. But still, uh, the principle is. Uh, okay. Now, 
Um, and that's how uh, Dolly, the sheep, was originally produced, was by people in the lab doing exactly that, uh, taking egg cells uh, from a, sh a sheep and removing the, now they took cells from the udders of sheep. They removed the nuclei, they removed the nucleus uh, from egg cells from another sheep, and then they implanted the new nucleus into the egg cell. A little electrical shock would uh, kind of restart that process, and a little Frankenstein would show up this, but uh, uh, that's, uh, and, and then it's, in some cases, that egg would then begin to develop as a normal embryo. Not very many, most of the time it didn't work. But that's how the original sheep was, a cloned sheep was done. Now, why you might ask would we go through all that trouble? Well, the company that did this was using sheep to produce pharmaceuticals. Okay, we use a lot of things. We use bacteria to produce pharmaceuticals. Uh, mostly human proteins that we that we need to have, like, like insulin and uh, growth hormone and uh, clotting factors uh, for people who have hemophilia. Um, we used to get that kind of stuff by taking tissue from uh, either another species or from humans and, and extracting it, but that runs you into all kinds of potential problems uh, with disease transmission and everything else. And so what they did, had done is they had transferred a, a human gene into the sheep. And that is a chancy process. Most of your sheep will not have the human gene in it or express it. But a few of them are going to. And they, they thought, well, you know, once we get one that's working, it would be a whole lot easier to clone that one than to try to recreate more and more sheep by the old method. That was the purpose behind Dolly, was to show that that could be done. And there's this kind of company that was in Scotland, and they, in fact, are still in business making uh, human making pharmaceuticals. Now, the reason you want to use, they were using sheep, uh, why you could use, I suppose you could use goats, I don't know, but they use sheep because, well, it's got a lot of sheep, I guess. Uh, if you have these genes inserted into the udder, when they produce milk, the human protein will be in the milk, and all you have to do is milk them and then purify the protein from the milk. It means that these animals can them for years. Okay. So that was kind of the, the, the logic behind what they were trying to do. Uh, it did run into problems, but it, uh, I mean, Dolly didn't live that long. Uh, she uh, essentially died of old age after not so many years. <laughs> I mean, see, one of the problems is they took the, they took the nucleus out of a sheep that was like four years old. So when you insert that into an egg, which uh, lamb is born, is it just born, or is it already four years, four and a half years old? I mean, you know what, we don't, we're not sure, that's that's one of those iffy parts about that whole process. Okay, but anyhow, you can manipulate individual cells. Uh, okay, culture media. Obviously, if you're going to grow them, you got to have something they like to grow on. Culture media are, are what we use. <laughs> the reality is that all of those uh, bacteria out there in the real world, probably 98% of them we wouldn't be able to grow in the lab because we have no idea what they need for culture media. Uh, what you find growing in labs tends to be things that are useful for research, 
or our pathogens because we really want to be able to figure out what they're doing. Most bacteria we couldn't culture if our lives depended on it at this point. Okay? Now, uh, we are basically six types of uh, culture media. We're going to have a lab that deals with this coming up after, after uh, break. Uh, the first pair here is defined and complex media. Now, a defined medium is one in which you know exactly how much of every element and nutrient is in that, right down to what the, the concentration is, every single thing that's in that medium. Now, there are very few organisms that we have a defined medium for. E. coli happens to be one, uh, because if you have a defined medium, then you can manipulate that and see what happens. Uh, most often, what you end up is a complex medium, which means uh, one that we're going to use uh, later is uh, going to have, to have added to it yeast extract and peptones, which are broken down protein. Once you start adding that kind of stuff, you no longer have a defined medium. You don't know what all you're adding exactly. The uh, BHI that you use, the brain-heart infusion, now, that's all kinds of stuff in there. It's not quantified well, but the organisms grow on it, and so that makes it very useful. Okay, So a defined medium, we know exactly what's in it, and you won't find a lot of those. Uh, and then a complex medium is, well, we threw everything in the kitchen sink in there hoping they're going to grow. You know, and that's what we do. Okay, then we have selective media. Selective media will encourage certain types or species of bacteria to grow, and they'll inhibit others. Uh, we can have uh, media that, in, uh, selective media, for instance, that uh, encourage gram-positive and inhibits gram-negatives. That's a selective medium, because I'm selecting one type to grow and inhibiting all the others. And then we have differential media, which means that Different bacteria will look different on this, and we can differentiate them from each other. Uh, we'll talk about that in lab uh, a lot more, uh, and I think I have some pictures in, in here that we, we can take a look at some of these. Uh, okay, then there's the anaerobic medium. Yes? Sorry, can you say differential again? Okay, uh, differential means that one type of bacterium will uh, have one appearance, and another type of bacterium will have a completely different appearance. So if you put them both on the plate, you can see the difference between them. You can tell that there's two different things there. Differential. You can differentiate between them. Sure. Now, anaerobic is exactly what it sounds like. You can grow them in an anaerobic environment. Not that simple, but it can be done, and we'll look at the, how that's done in a minute. And then the last one is transport media. That's when you're going to transport them from one place to another. And we actually did some of that the first week when you, or maybe it was the second, second week, when you inoculated the slants. That is a common way to transport. Okay, so this is obviously, you are used to seeing slants. This is what, uh, what you uh, used. And basically, all you do is you pour liquid auger into the tube, and then you let it harden while it's resting in an egg. How they're made. Alright, so here's the defined medium for E. coli. And you can see that we know exactly how much of every one of these things is in there. Uh, 
how much glucose, sodium, hydrogen, phosphates, uh, potassium, ammonia, perhaps it's not ammonium actually, uh, magnesium sulfide. We know exactly how much of everything is there. You can calculate the exact amount. How, you can even calculate it down to exactly how many atoms of each one of them. Okay, that's what moles are all about. That from chemistry. Alright, so uh, that's a defined medium. And this happens to be for E. coli, it's one of the few defined mediums there is today. Okay, a selective medium. Okay, um, if I have one pH, I get a lot of bacterial colonies. If I use a different pH, almost no bacteria, but I get fungal colonies. This is selective. This is Selecting for fungal growth and inhibiting bacterial growth. This one is selecting for bacterial growth and inhibiting fungal growth. Okay. Yes. What's the key characteristic of a fungal colony? Of a fungal what? Yeah. Fungal colony. What's the characteristic? Well, basically their shape. Uh, they're always going to look um, fuzzy. Uh, and you're going to have lots of little hyphae running out around. Often they have furrows on the top. They come in different colors. Uh, penicillium, for instance, is kind of blue in the middle and white around the edges, and it gets wrinkly uh, with time. So, but they come in a variety of colors. Uh, white is probably the most common, but some will actually turn black. Uh, others are, are blue. Uh, those are the kinds of characteristics you look at. Okay, here's a differential medium. Here we put uh, different uh, bacteria here. Uh, this is blood auger, which of course is a not a defined medium when you add blood to auger. It's no longer defined, as so now we're dealing with a complex medium. Okay, these organisms over here do something called beta homolysis. This would be uh, like uh, Streptococcus uh, uh, pyogenes, which causes strep throat. It actually uses the hemoglobin in, that was in the cells, and you see it's cleared around it. Okay, this is called beta hemolysis because we've broken down the hemoglobin, and that is a characteristic of, of certain streptococcal organisms primarily. Over here, you have a different streptococcus that does alpha hemolysis. It breaks it down a little bit, but not completely. And then you have another one over here that doesn't break down the, the hemoglobin at all. And so this plate is differentiating between these three types of bacteria. It's a differential medium. They will each look different based on the medium. Uh, another thing that we look at is for, look for is fermentation. Uh, and fermentation most often produces a gas of some kind. And one of the ways that's done is you put a little tube in here upside down. This one did not do any fermentation, but over here you can see that there is gas is accumulated here at the top of this little tube, and that's an indicator of the fermentation that's going on in that particular tube. Uh, McConkie auger is both selective and differential. It's one of the interesting things about it. Um, this is E. coli. This is nutrient auger here, the stuff we use in the lab. 
This is E. coli, which looks pretty much like what you've seen E. coli look like. This is Staph aureus. Not look much different. Now, if I put it on McConkie auger, the E. coli grows and gives you this reddish color, and the Staph aureus will not grow at all. So in this case, it's acting as a selective medium. It's allowing this one to grow and inhibiting that one. Okay. But if I'm using different bacteria, no, friend E. coli again. And here I'm using a type of uh, salmonella. Both of them grow, but the E. coli has one appearance, the salmonella has a different appearance, and therefore here it's acting as a differential. So this is one of those rare media that can, depending on what you're growing on it, may be either selective or differential. Okay, anaerobic. This is the fancy way. Um, basically, what you have, you put your plates down in here. Um, you uh, have up here in the top of the lid a, a chemical that will absorb oxygen produce uh, palladium pellets, but they remove oxygen from the inside, and so after a while, of course, there's no oxygen left in, inside the jar. Uh, down here, uh, this is a little pouch that releases hydrogen, and, uh, so to help with this reaction, and carbon dioxide, which replaces the oxygen, because when you take all the oxygen out, you've got to replace it with something. And then this is a, a, a uh, an indicator that is methylene blue uh, that indicates that this is, in fact, an Environment. If there was oxygen present, it would it would be a different color. Okay? Uh, so you clamp the lid on and you activate all this, and you end up with a an anaerobic chamber, and then you can grow anaerobic organisms. In. Okay, that's the the more complex way. The simple way that some labs still do uh, is you get a glass jar and uh, put a candle in it put your plates down in there, you light the candle and then you seal the jar. And the flame on the candle will burn until there's no oxygen left, and then it will go out and then you have an anaerobic environment. And of course the, the combustion will produce carbon dioxide and water. So uh, that's a, a simpler method. In a regular research lab, nobody would ever do that anymore. Uh, but you know, in a place uh, for educational purposes, it's a simpler way to do it. Okay, so uh, a lot of times you want to preserve cultures for some period of time. Uh, short periods of time, you can put them in the refrigerator. You can keep bacteria in the refrigerator, and it's just a short period. We're looking at maybe a year or so. Uh, they, they will still be viable. You can re-inoculate plates. They will grow. Uh, basically, the, the four degrees simply stops them from growing. Now, if you want to keep them for a longer time period, you put them in a deep freeze, and usually this is a minus 20 centigrade freezer. Uh, normally there are special little uh, tubes that are used, they're called cryotubes. Uh, you put glycerin, a glycerin solution in there, and then you put your bacteria in there, and then you put them in the freezer, and the glycerin helps protect them as they freeze, and, and then you, uh, you can keep them like that for years. If you need to start that culture again, you simply take the cryotube out, take a loop, just 
scrape a little bit off the top, close it back up, back in the freezer, and inoculate a plate, and it'll grow. I've seen it done many times. And so these are often reference cultures. You know, they're cultures that they've been working with. People know what, you know, what their characteristics are. Uh, and uh, if uh, you start to be, have, they have been there too long, what you do is you culture some of them, and then you refreeze, you freeze them freshly all over again. And so you can keep cultures for years and years. You can keep viruses the same way. Uh, when you hear about this, the CDC has uh, the uh, plague bacterium, uh, that's how they keep it. They're in deep freeze. Uh, Ebola, in deep freeze. You keep, now, so that's, that's how they're stored. Now, if you want to store them even longer, they can do lyophilization, which is basically freeze drying. Uh, and most bacteria will survive this. Uh, I mean, that doesn't, obviously they're not going to do anything if they don't die. Uh, when we buy, um, I've been at William and Mary in some summers, we have bought cultures of a specific bacterium, a particular strain. There's a place up near DC, um, I can't remember the name of it now, but they have a, a, a huge selection of different bacteria and viruses that they keep in cryo. They periodically take them out and reculture them, put them back. I mean, they, they maintain them, and then you can buy them. Um, and what we got was a little tube about this big with a little bit of powder in the bottom. And then you uh, rehydrate them with some sterile water, and then you can keep them on plates. And, grow. and that you can keep for a very long time. So there are many ways of preserving and storing cultures. You just leave them out at that room temperature, they just, they'll just overgrow the plate and they'll, they'll run out of nutrients and they'll die. Okay, now, uh, cell division for bacteria is uh, they use binary fission. They have only one chromosome, so there's no need for mitosis. Remember, mitosis was an organized way to separate chromosomes. So everybody got one of each. Well, if I only got one, I don't need to worry about that. So what bacteria will do is replicate the chromosome. The chromosome will, and they start to build a septum across, and as they're doing that, the, uh, they enlarge the cell, one chromosome ends up at either end, and some bacteria, the chromosome actually attaches to the cell uh, membrane on the inside, so it gets pushed farther away from each other, and then this grows down here complete, and then they separate into cells, which then can go through this again, and I get four cells, and then I get eight cells, and then I get 16, and, and that's basically how they grow. They grow a lot, for many of them. Um, e. coli will grow um, somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes if they have optimum temperature and nutrients. Take about 20 to 30 minutes to go through this process. So you can get a lot of bacteria in a very short time, because you're doing exponential growth really strong exponential growth, okay? Uh, and th that will continue, and I have a growth curve that we'll take a look at in a moment. And this is just a uh, photomicrograph, uh, actually this is a transmission electron microscope. You, uh, you can see the septum forming, you can see the, where the chromosome is on either side, and this is the process of dividing. Now, the time that it takes to grow and divide is called the generation time. 
And so when you are working with a specific bacterium or you're looking in the literature, they will usually tell you the generation time is such and such. And then they'll give you the temperature at which that was determined. And usually they'll tell you what medium they're using. Because if you don't know those two things, then it's not very useful information. You need to know what, you know, what are you feeding them and how long and what temperature to keep them at. Uh, so you need to know those conditions. Now, this is the difference between arithmetic and logarithmic growth. Arithmetic growth means that whenever they divide, we just get one new cell each time. And when you plot this, the number of cells versus time, you get a nice straight line. Okay. Now, exponential growth means that I double the number of cells every generation time. So I have 1, then 2, then 4, then 8, 16, 32, 64. Uh, and you get, when you plot this, you get a, a curve like this. This is referred to as a logarithmic growth curve. Now, uh, the assumption here, and when you look at it, do ecology, uh, all species have some ability to do this, uh, although large organisms tend not to ever be very logarithmic, although humans seem to be approaching that. Um, but um, there are limits to this. The assumption here is that they have all the nutrients they need and the waste products are being removed and, you know, and all that. And if you're culturing some bacteria, that's not always the case. So you don't always end up with uh, continuous exponential growth unless you keep refreshing the medium. And you can do that. There are ways of doing that. Okay, so here are uh, two different, these are both logarithmic growth. And the difference, and I don't want to bore you too much with some math here, but sometimes it does help over here. The time is the same on both of these. Over here, we have a linear scale, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000. And that's where I get my J-shape. This is referred to as a J-shaped curve. On this graph, this is a logarithmic scale. This is 100, and then 1,000, and then 10,000, 100,000, and on up. And when you plot this same data here, in this environment, you get a straight line. And it's one of the ways of testing if you have true logarithmic growth is plotted on this is called semi-log paper, if you've heard of that, uh, and you end up with a straight line. Now, here's a typical growth curve. Which time is it? Oh, yeah, got a few minutes left. Now, the assumptions here. A, at the beginning, we are inoculating a fresh medium, usually a broth in this case, in these environments. So we're taking bacteria from wherever they've been and dropping them in fresh medium. And then, during the time period of the growth, at no, that, that is never refreshed, okay? They just grow in that, in that broth, okay? And so what you will see is four basic stages to their growth. The beginning here is called the lag phase. And lag is based on the fact that when you dump them in there, they have to be get kind of acclimatized to the new medium. And usually, if you've taken them from somewhere where they haven't been growing very much, the cells are relatively small, and the cells need to increase in, in size individually. They're not dividing, but the cells are, each individual cell is getting larger so that they can get ready to divide. And that will, there will be some time period that will vary depending on the culture and the medium and the temperature and you know, a lot of other things. Once they pass through that, though, 
they will go into the log phase or exponential phase. And here you're going to see logarithmic growth. Okay, this is that J-shaped curve right here that we saw in the other plot. The difference here is that as they grow, they use up nutrients, and there's fewer nutrients available, and waste products from the cells begin to accumulate. And so at some point, growth begins to level off because the here is this rapid growth. Here you have one of two situations. One, the most probable one is that new cells are being produced at the same rate that old cells are dying because there are limitations on, media, on, on nutrients and the waste products are accumulating. The other possibility is, is they just simply stop growing. Nobody's dying, nobody's growing, they're just sitting there. But they're still metabolizing. They're still using nutrients. They're still producing waste products. And eventually, they will go into a death phase where more will die in a given time period than are produced. Now, usually cell division does not stop completely in this death phase because as cells die, they release nutrients into the environment, which cells that are still alive can then use. The death phase often goes for a very long time. But these are the four phases of, of a typical microbial growth culture. Okay, so you start off with lag, no cell division, but we're getting larger. Then exponential, we're growing as fast as we can given our environment. And then we reach a point where we can't continue doing that and, and it levels off into the uh, stationary phase and then, and, uh, and then a, a death phase. And so you can take any bacterium and put them in a broth culture and if you, what you, of course, obviously have to have a way to figure out how many are there, but you can you can actually duplicate this kind of a, a plot. Again, the assumption here is cells taken from an old culture put into a new culture. No nutrients added, no waste products. Now, if you want to keep them growing, you can have this kind of an arrangement where they're growing down here, uh, sterile air or whatever gases they require are being entered here into the culture. Fresh medium is constantly dripped into the culture here. And then as it gets up too high, the overflow, this is my overflow tube, which removes old culture. And you can then keep this culture at a fairly in, in exponential growth for a much longer time period. Constantly replenishing the Okay. All right, real, we'll just do a couple of parts here and then we'll stop. Okay, so, uh, and you've done some of this in lab already. How do we measure microbial growth? How do we know? And, and I know it was on your bacterial uh, uh, supplement. Like there was, no, it wasn't that. It was another one of your uh, lab, lab reports. Um, okay, so one option is direct methods, microscopic counts. The advantage, you don't have to wait for them to grow. You just put them on a slide and you count them. Okay, And we often use this type of a slide. Uh, this is, uh, these, you buy these, they're fairly expensive. They're in the two, three hundred dollars for one slide because they're very precision made. And 
Underneath here, you have a little chamber of a fixed volume, so you know exactly how much is in there. Uh, and then on the cover slip, you have grid marks that have been etched into the cover slip, one millimeter by one millimeter. Okay? And what you do is you put your solution into these uh, uh, underneath here, get this thing to work here, and any overflow comes out through here. And you just fill this area underneath, and then you simply count how many cells are in each grid. Usually, you don't count all the grids. Normally, what's done is you count this grid, you count five, each corner, and the one in the middle, and then you average. That's the more standard way of doing it. Uh, this is a close-up of one of the grids here, this area right here. Okay? And so you would count all of them in that particular area. And then you pick another grid, and you count all of them. There. You do five of those, and then you would, you would have it. Um, now, the downside to this one is that you don't know if they're dead or alive. All you know is you can see cells. They might be dead cells. You have no way of knowing. And so they generally get an overestimation of the, uh, of the population by using this kind of thing. Uh, it's quicker, but not as accurate. Okay, then we can... Uh, use direct methods that, uh, uh, again, not requiring incubation again. And these are electronic. Okay, so, uh, do I have, no, I don't have one of those picture. I thought I did. Uh, basically, what you have with uh, a coulter counter is you have a, a little funnel on the top. You have a very thin tube that's about one cell in diameter coming down. and as it goes down through and into a flask on the bottom, there's uh, two electrodes. Okay? And the resistance between those electrodes will change every time a cell is there instead of just the medium. And so as the cells drip through, the, the counter says one, two. It just counts it for you. Really handy. But again, it doesn't know the difference between live and dead cells. Can I count the same one twice? No, because after, once they go through it, it's on, it won't count until the next one breaks. Uh, and and uh, so that's that's a, a, a counter again, another type of counter. Again, it tends to overestimate uh, what, what you have. Uh, and so what we'll do the next time is we'll talk about the methods that require incubation, which is what you've already done in lab. Uh, you can do serial dilutions, but there are some other, there are a couple of other methods that we'll take a look at. And these are all. Uh, there's indirect methods, and then we'll finish that, and then we will start on that. All right, now that we know what we can do to make them grow, how do we keep them from doing that? So the next section is going to be about how do we control the growth of microbes, and we'll get into physical methods and chemical methods of controlling their growth. All right, uh, we'll stop here, and then we'll uh, see you up in the lab. We'll get your plates out.